If we look back at Matthew chapter 6, we had gotten through basically down to the famous verse, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. That was kind of where we had ended it. We discussed about the fleetingness and the corruptibleness of the worldly treasures and how that though we try to rely on those things to give us ability, to give us security, and to give us happiness, okay, we discussed how those things really are an inadequate source of all three. Number one, they're, they're inadequate because nothing in this world can truly do that for us. Okay? And secondly, they're inadequate because they don't last. They're so fleeting. They're so, uh, they're so frail. They can be so easily taken away from us either by decay or by theft. So it just, you know, again, it's, it's one of those common sense things. And I don't know, you've probably all encountered this, encountered people who have a lot of what we'd say they have a lot of book smarts, but they don't have a lot of common sense, okay? And then you have people who've never been to college, never been through high school, but they're just geniuses as it comes to common sense things, okay? And we'd always, we prize the one and we kind of look at the other one as a poor, sad person. So when we think about just having common sense... Okay, then it makes much more common sense to not put our hopes and trust in something in this world that is so very fragile. Okay, but for some reason we still do. Okay, for some reason we still trust in it. For some reason we still look to it. For some reason we have these questions in our mind How can I go forward if I don't have XYZ? If I don't have the ability, if I don't have that security, how can I be happy? And we kind of briefly discussed that. A quote that I left out as we were kind of closing, but something that would be good to start uh, this morning with. We kind of made the point that Jesus has to be our treasure. Jesus has to be the thing that is in our heart that is our utmost treasure. Okay? Everything else is fleeting. Everything else will never give us ability, security, or happiness. Only Jesus Christ can. So therefore, we treasure him above all else. And our heart then follows suit with that. Okay? And a quote from Martin Luther said, What a man loves, that is his God. For he carries it in his heart... He goes about with it night and day. He sleeps and wakes with it, be it what it may, wealth or self, pleasure or renown. I thought that was a really good quote that basically sums up what we have been talking about. That that is what our God is. We may say that we believe in God, Jehovah, the one true self-existent one, the eternal one, the one that saved us, died for us, the one that called us, the one that elected, all these things. We may say that, but what truly forms as our God is whatever we treasure in our heart, whether that be wealth or self or pleasure or renown. So going forward, he says this in verse 22, the light of the body is the eye. If therefore thine eye be single, thy whole body shall be full of light. But if thine eye be evil, thy whole body shall be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in thee be darkness, how great is that darkness? No man can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. So as we look at this this morning, I started off with talking about keeping your eye on the prize, okay? 
So as you look at this, he says that the light of the body is the eye. If therefore thine eye be single, thy whole body shall be full of light. And what he's talking about there about your eye being single, okay? Number one, he's not talking about a dating relationship, okay? Um, he's not saying that if your eye is single versus married versus in a relationship, whatever, Facebook status you want to put on that. Complicated, okay? He's also not saying if you're the one-eyed man, okay? If you've only got one single eye, then you're good, okay? But he is kind of, kind of hinting at something that he talks about with the two masters. We have two eyes, right? Okay. It is very, I'm going to say very difficult, I'm going to say nigh impossible to not look at one thing with both eyes. Does that make sense? Even though we have two eyes, we can't take our eyes, separate them, and look in different directions like maybe some fish, okay, and other animals can do. You know, if you think about like lizards and things like that, they can take their eyes and they can kind of spin them sideways and they can look left and right so they can see both directions at the same time. We can't do that. We have to have that bioptic vision, okay, where we take both of our eyes and we're singled in on one thing. That's the only way we can see, all right? So he's giving a kind of singleness, duality kind of argument here because that's what he's also talking about later when he talks about having two masters. You can't look both directions at the same time. It doesn't work. All you can do is have a singleness of eye. The two have to be one. Okay. So the same thing is he's talking about with your masters. Okay. You can't have two masters. You can only have one. It just That's almost self-explanatory. Because to be mastered by something means you're in 100% subjection to that. Well, how can you be 100% in subjection to two separate things? It's impossible. Okay? You can only give 100% of yourself 100% of the time to one place. You cannot split 100%. That just, again, common sense tells us that's impossible. I know a lot of us you know, will make the statement we want to be two places at once. Well, can you? No, it's impossible, okay? You can only be dedicated to one master. You can only look at one thing at a time, okay? So what he's saying is, is one of those is going to dominate your vision, all right? Either you're singled out on one particular thing or another, whether that be on something that is good, of the light, as he says, or else it's of the darkness. But whichever one you choose, you will have a singleness of vision on that. Now, there is a singleness of vision in a good way, as he describes here, that if you're single in vision, the, the uh, whole body will be full of light. Okay. If you single in, zero in, as they would say, on the things of the light, the things of God, the things of righteousness. You know, Jesus will say in, Je in John chapter 1 that he came and he was the light of the world. Okay. So what he's saying there is here, zero in, be single in your vision towards the light, that would be Jesus Christ. It means put all your vision, put all your looking to on him. And if you do that, then what he says is that the body is the recipient of whatever the eye gives, okay? So this is so interesting to me because there is so many... Um, like, uh, you know, like Indian cultures and things like that that have these 
uh, these things about the eyes, okay? Um, the eyes are the receiver end of the soul, okay? You know, you might have heard things like, uh, and it's probably, it could just be all folk tale kind of stuff. Um, but, you know, you hear about with Indians that they look at the eyes as being the windows of the soul, okay? Because it's whatever it takes in, all right? Well, Jesus is making that same statement, okay? Now, I would say probably Jesus made the statement before they did, but Jesus is making that statement, this profound realization that what we take in by our eyes does actually affect our entire body, okay? Now, it may not be in a direct way. It may be indirectly, okay? So maybe the eye brings something into the mind. The mind then dwells on it, which then corrupts the heart, and now your body is following suit with the heart, Okay? But he makes the point that the eye is the source, the eye is the starting place, the eye is where either light or darkness is going to enter the body. Okay, and we're not getting into some kind of big old esoteric, you know, <laughs> uh, transcendent kind of thing. We're sp speaking very practically here, because that's what Jesus is saying. You know, we have a little uh, children's song that will say, Be careful, little eyes, what you see, for the Father up above is looking down in love. Be careful, little eyes, what you see. He goes on and says, Be careful, little ears, what you hear, and hands, what you touch. Okay? Well, I mean, that's a very simplistic way of saying your eyes can actually get you into trouble. Your eyes not only get you in trouble in like, a, Oh, no, I did wrong. I looked at the wrong thing. But that what you take in by your eyes will actually draw your body into it. So if you are looking at Christ and you're single in vision on the light, then what he says is your whole body will be brought into the light. Okay, So this is kind of, this, this plays into things that are repeated like in, um, in, uh, in, in the book of Peter uh, when he is talking about um, us being a, a royal priesthood and he'll talk about bringing our bodies into subjection um, that we should be uh, that we should be kind of drawing ourselves into submission to God because of who we are okay and so he's saying that this is a, this is a way in which you do that by what you look at what you take in by your eye okay so there's that he also if you look at it as far as singleness and you would look at it more instead of singleness is saying goodness okay righteousness what you look at in righteousness will fill the body in light because in the contrary he then flops and says in verse 23 but if thine eye be evil okay so you have single and evil well that's you know that those those words don't correlate okay so what you take there is that singleness is also not just meaning singleness as being single in vision, but also that it is a good source, whatever you're viewing, okay? If your eye be good, then the light will be filled with, uh, it will be, well, the whole body shall be full of light. If your eye be evil, the whole body shall be full of darkness. Now again, the eye itself does not have a soul that can be corrupted that's, uh, oh, I got a good eye and a bad eye, okay? And that's not what we're talking about here. Um, for some people, that is the case, okay? You have physically ailments with your eyeballs, but that's not what he's describing here. He's talking about what we are taking in. If your eye is viewing good things, then the light of, the, of God will fill the whole body. If your eye is bent on evil things, viewing evil things, looking at evil things, then you will be filled with darkness. So, and he says, how great is that darkness? makes an emphasis on that. 
He's again trying to get back at this idea of our heart being the source of the problem, the heart being either good or bad, the heart being either directing us towards full, true service to God or directing us away into kind of a wicked, selfish, prideful way, okay? And he's saying that your eyes, in this sense, they do have a play in that, okay? So as he's talking about here what we're seeing, what we're looking at, and tying that into what our vision is, what our hope is, what our trust is on the things of this world, that's how these are tying in. If all we're looking at is all of the fleeting, worldly possessions, the things that we look at and say, no, I have to have these things. Think about this with commercials. Isn't that how we get to such an attachment of all these things that he just listed out and said, don't worry about them? It's because we're sitting there watching TV all the time. And they're sitting there telling you about how your razor blade doesn't work as good as this razor blade would. And if you just had this one, it would glide across your body and you would never have a nick or, and you'd feel radiant and jubilant and everything would be over a razor blade. Okay? We're going to get into this because we kind of got into it at the nursing home. But, I mean, you see 50 bajillion commercials about toothbrushes. Okay? How complicated is a toothbrush? It is plastic bristles on the end of a stick. We are one step up from what we used to be, which was literally a frayed end of a stick that we gnawed on and rubbed over our teeth. We're one step above that. We have just gone fashionable with plastic, okay? Now, I get it. Where there's Spider-Man, Superman, there's Darth... I get all that, okay? All right? I get it. Trust me. 110%. I read you loud and clear. But for us... All I need you to do, toothbrush, is scrub junk off my teeth, okay? That's the end of what it's going to do for you. It's not going to make you look prettier. It's not going to make your teeth look whiter. It's not going to make you a healthier, happier individual. It's going to scrub gunk off your teeth so you don't get cavities and your breath doesn't stink. That's the end game of the toothbrush. Yet, probably billions of dollars of advertising are invested in selling you on the latest, greatest toothbrush now look i get with if you look at cars okay cars and the technology and things in cars it always amazes me how we come out with a car every single year you know the engine really hasn't changed it's the same thing going all the way back to the 1800s it's the same thing you got some pistons you got some fuel it pumps it turns wheels that's it yet every year Every year, there's a new body style, there's a new engine capability, there's a new technology. At least those are somewhat kind of advances, okay? The toothbrush is not. It's the same thing. Yet we are sold, billions of dollars a year sold on advertising for these things. And here's the thing, you don't think, you want to sit here today, we all do, we want to sit and be like, yeah, I know, and I ain't buying all that, it never affects me, I am so much above all that thing, I can handle it all. But then you get a little jingle stuck in your head, okay? I can still remember from probably when I was like six years old, the number for Goldberg and Associates. Anybody know? Call Goldberg, 800-600-6014. On repeat, on the radio, I, I think they are everlasting. They never die. I think Goldberg and Associates will be here for forever. That commercial has been the same. Stuck in your head, isn't it? Then it makes you want to go, well, what is Goldberg's? And why should, you know, that's how this gets us trapped and sucked in, okay? 
And that's what he's saying. Your eye needs to be single on Jesus Christ because everything else is going to suck you in. But I promise you, it is not going to sustain you. So don't get sucked in by the natural material things, whether that be on the side of pride, lust, arrogance, those kind of things, or on the side of, I've got to have this. I have to have this. If I don't have this, I'm never going to be able to survive. I won't have ability. I won't have security. I won't have happiness if I don't have this. Whichever way it is, he's saying, if you focus and zero your eyes in on those things, you're going to get sucked in. It will ultimately fill your whole body with darkness. And how great is that darkness? I mean, this is the story of true Hollywood stories, okay? Flip on ETV or whatever and just read or listen to some true Hollywood stories. That's all this is. Well, I saw this. I thought I had to have it. thought I couldn't be who I wanted to be without it. And now I'm a drug addict, divorced, homeless, uh, you know, uh, got whatever. I'm in jail. I mean, that's that's just the story. You read it over and over again. Over and over and over and over and over and over again. Goes all the way back to David looking on Bathsheba. Gotta have it. Collapse of the family. Goes all the way back to Eve and Adam in the garden. Gotta have it. Don't worry about it. You know, we talked about this of stop and smell the fruit trees. Okay? You're sitting in a garden planted by God himself with every tree who knows how many that would have been every tree that was good and great and awesome for food and it was pleasurable to the eye you had all these things that you could have looked on eaten on gorged yourself you know had a good old time it's the one thing that you looked on and you desired and you lusted in your heart and said i got to have this i will not be complete without it i can't be secure i can't be happy i don't have what i need without this one thing He says that singleness on darkness will take your whole body. And that's exactly what we see. Going back to Adam and Eve, that's what we see. Their whole body was ultimately involved in that. So he says, keep your eye on God. Keep your eye on Christ. Keep your eye on things of the light. Okay? And if our eye is on heaven, okay... This is kind of the things of God, the kingdom of heaven. If you look in Colossians chapter 3, he'll say this, If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affection, set that singleness of your eye on things above, not on things on the earth. For ye are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall ye also appear with him in glory." Mortify, therefore, your members which are upon the earth, fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, and covetousness, which is idolatry, for which things sake the wrath of God cometh on the children of disobedience, in the which ye also walked some time when you lived in them. But now ye also put off all these anger wrath malice blasphemy filthy communication out of your mouth lie not to one another seeing that ye have put off the old man with his deeds and have put on the new man which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him keep your eye on the prize keep your eye on jesus christ keep your eye on the kingdom of heaven because as you've heard before what you see is what you get okay 
What you see is what you get. When you are seeing or focusing in, zeroing in on the things of the world, guess what? What you see is what you get. It's going to be a frail, fleeting, pitiful excuse for ability, security, and happiness. And it will ultimately end up taking you down with it. But if our eye is on the kingdom of heaven, if our eye is on Jesus Christ, then what we see is what we get, right? We get a savior. We get a brother. We get a father. We get a king. We get a messiah. We get a master of the universe. Okay? That's who we get. So as he goes on, he kind of elaborates more on this and He says, no man can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. And mammon there is literally money. Okay? So you cannot serve God and money. He's specifying. He's zeroing in on a particular issue that is reiterated multiple times. The love of money is the root of all evil. And it's that verse, which is used a lot, has so much implication behind it. The love of money is the root of all evil. What we initially go to is, is that, oh, well, yes, if I'm loving it, like in the sense of, oh, yeah, I want to be a millionaire and I love my money. And therefore, you know, I'm idolatrous towards money. Now, there's also this idea that we've been fleshing out in these last few verses here. The love of money as in I am taking money as the source of my ability, of my security and of my happiness. I have put that as my treasure and therefore that's what my heart is wrapped up in. So it may not even be something like, oh, I need my money so that I can buy my jet planes and things like that. It may be as simple as I think I need all I need this money because without it, I cannot be secure and I cannot be happy. I cannot have the ability to do what I want to do. Well, that's a love. That's an idolatrous love of that money. It is the root of all evil. Now, that's not... Again, in that sense, as we talked about it with the other sense, we're talking about, yeah, it's the root of all evil because they go out here and they blow it on drugs and everything else. And that's how it's the root of all evil. Well, on the other side, it's the root of all evil in the sense of it creates doubt. It creates unfaithfulness. Unfaithfulness to God. Lack of trust in his ability and his protecting and his upholding hand. Lack of trust in his sovereignty. So it is the root of all evil. It is the thing that most, you know, relationships argue about. It is a developer of evil within the marriage. Because if you're arguing about it, if you're fighting about it, if you're well, then you're stirring up turmoil, turmoil, you're stirring up strife, you're creating evil within the relationship off of money. Because we're trusting in it, we're loving it, we're relying on it, we're saying we've got to have it if we don't. And look, again, this is, this is one of those things, it's when you talk about it like this, it makes you sound like you're talking about some kind of you know, asceticism, some kind of monkish life. It's like, yeah, if we're just like the original Christian church and we sold all our goods and pulled it together and we all lived here in this building together like a commune, we'd all be happy because we would have detached ourselves from worldly goods and all these things. Okay. Unfortunately, I'm pretty sure monks don't wear LuLaRoe, so we would be in trouble, okay? In trouble. But these things are what will cause us to rely or hold on to or create evil within our lives because we love 
them. We have put them as our utmost, as our treasure. Okay. So he says, you cannot have two masters. And what he's talking about here is, is you either have one master, Jesus Christ, okay, God, you rely on him, you trust on him, he is your master, he's the one that tells you where to go, how to do it, and what to do, and you trust him to be your ultimate provider, or you can have your other master, which is whatever else is of this world. Whatever thing in this world that lies to you, whatever thing in this world that tells you this is where your happiness is truly coming from, you cannot have two masters. It's one or the other, okay? You cannot have your cake and eat it too. It doesn't work. I know people want to try to get there. It cannot happen. You cannot have two masters. You can only have one. So the question is not, how do I have two masters? The question is, which master is your master? Okay? Who are we submitting ourselves to? And there's two ideas with this. Number one, that God will not allow you to have two masters. Okay? It's not in the rule book. God will not allow that. God will not say, oh, sure, don't worry about it. Hey, grass is greener on the other side. It's better if grass is green on both sides. You just hop back and forth and enjoy both sides because I'm just just so tickled pink that you even have me as 50% of your master. Go for it. Don't worry about it. As long as you just give me a little bit here and there. Pay your tithe. Don't worry about it. As long as you just give me, I'll take just 10%. I'm an easygoing kind of guy. He won't allow it. He says, it's all or nothing, buddy. If you look in Exodus chapter 20 and verse 5, he says, Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them, that would be idols, nor serve them, false gods. For I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and the fourth generation of them that hate me. Ooh, that's pretty, um, that's pretty exclusive, Okay. And we don't like that, especially in our modern day uh, society. We don't like exclusivity. Everyone should feel included. Everyone should be able to bring whatever they have to the table, and it should all be accepted, and we all should hold hands and sing kumbaya and just be excited that there's so much diversity and this wealth of differing ideas and all this stuff. No one can be absolutely right. There is no objectivity. Everything is subjective. Truth is subjective. Reality is subjective. Everything is subjective to make everybody happy so everyone feels included and nobody feels excluded. But God made a very inclusive as well as a very exclusive statement okay in what in what he said in exodus he said it is me and no one else very exclusive me and no one else there's no room for other gods there is no room in your life for other things other idols you cannot have another master it's me or nobody He will not allow for anyone else to be worshipped but himself. He is going to be the sole source of our worship. He's going to be the sole uh, source of our identity. It's going to be him or nothing. And you saw the consequences that he laid out there, that he is a jealous God and that he will visit, he will return, he will repay, he will judge, he will enact Uh, you know, punishment on those who fail to do that, who fail to love him wholly and who hate him, he will visit him and he may even take it on down a few generations. 
So he will have it be him alone and nobody else. And again, as you're getting back to the common sense thing of this, okay, as we talked about with the things of this world, the money and the idols and all those things, the things that are fleeting that will go away from us, that aren't permanent, that aren't eternal, the things that we put all of our hope in and our happiness in but are so easily taken away from us, we said it just makes common sense that you wouldn't put your trust in those things. If you've got one thing over here that says, I'm eternal, I created everything, I never die, I never change, I never go away, I will always be here. Or you can put your trust in something that as of tomorrow could be burned up in a house fire and it's gone. Well, now which woman I'm going, which, which way am I going to pick? What makes most sense? Well, the same thing here. You can either have the eternal creator of the heavens and the earth, or you can worship a clump of wood stick, clay, or metal. What makes more sense? Are you going to worship something that you just made with your own hands? Why would you do that? What sense does that make? You know, there were some cultures where they worship things like cats. Are you kidding me? Why in the world would you ever worship a cat? All right? In fact, I think that was the earliest forms of satanic worship were worshiping cats because cats are of the devil. Okay? They don't want you to pet them. They act all like they're on your side, and then they try to cut your neck in your sleep. I mean, they're just evil animals, okay? So, I mean, why would you worship that? Why would you worship something that is of this world that is just as frail as you are? Worship something carved out of wood that the next day a fire could come through and completely destroy. How much sense does that make? So then on the second point, we talk about how it is impossible. It's not possible from just a practical standpoint to have two masters. You can't physically, mentally, spiritually do it. Okay, You will be beholden. You will be slated towards one or the other. You cannot be slated to both. Especially when you're talking about things that are diametrically opposed to each other. Okay, So if you've ever taken those magnets... Okay, everybody does this because it's so cool. You take a magnet, you know, you put it like positive to positive or negative to negative, and you see how they repel each other. Okay, but if you put positive to negative, they come together. All right, and so you put them together, and everybody tries, especially if you've got big magnets, you try really hard to push them together as hard as you can to see if they'll touch. Okay, now if you got some wimpy like refrigerator magnets, you probably can do that. Get a big magnet and try to do that. Absolutely impossible. All right. Unless you have some kind of machinery or something like that that can exact enough force. But as far as me with my two little hands here, trying to push those forces together, they cannot come together. They will always push each other apart. Okay. Well, sin and the things of this fallen creation are diametrically opposed to God in his holiness, righteousness, and goodness. Okay. So to try to make the world and the things of the world my master while I've got my God who says don't do those things because they're only going to lead to death those things can never be on the same playing field I can't go after one and try to bring the other along with me it won't work okay so physically spiritually mentally it's it's impossible to do you see him kind of he, he you, you see this kind of play out if you think about things that he addresses as the word of God addresses, like things with polygamy, okay? So having more than one wife. Now, I, I, again, as I say this, think about how all of that could go terribly wrong. And basically you have why it doesn't work from a very practical standpoint, okay? 
people get jealous of people for a lot less reasons. But having more than one wife all vying for the attention of one person... I know there's some men that would say, yeah, that sounds like really great. Everyone wanting my attention. That sounds awesome. If you look at it, though, if you, I mean, we got biblical examples of this. If you go back to 1 Samuel and you look at Elkinah, in the very verse, the first verses of 1 Samuel chapter 1, you have the story of how Samuel came to be. Okay, So Samuel the prophet came to be because he was the son of Hannah, who was one of the wives of Elkinah. And all the other little wives used to make fun of Hannah because she was buried and couldn't have kids. So Hannah always felt left out. Well, there's you a very good picture of why polygamy doesn't work. You're never going to have some happy household where five or six or seven or 11 wives are all just working together and everything's happy and everything's going well. You go back to Sarah and you go back to Abraham when Abraham entered in with her hand with his handmaid her handmaiden, you have there a jealousy thing there, okay? That's why she got kicked out. So, you see that it doesn't work practically. You cannot have more there can only be one devoted uh, one devoted way in the relationship. Okay, So if you look at that now practically as we're talking about our relationship with Jesus Christ, our relationship with God, you can only, again, he uses the husband and wife analogy there. Christ is our husband. The church is our bride. There's no room for anybody else. No other, ma- no other husbands, no other brides, no other people in that. It's just his bride and our husband. Okay, We can't insert another husband into that equation. It doesn't work. So there's, from a practical standpoint, it doesn't work. You cannot have two masters. You're going to serve one or the other. In Romans chapter 6, he'll talk about this. He'll say that the things that we have, sin and that kind of stuff, is going to either have dominion over us. That means that we would be its slaves. Okay? Or on the other side, as he talks about with grace, we are freed from that dominion. And now we come under the dominion of Jesus Christ. Well, as we try to go back and do the things that we were freed from, we're putting ourselves back under the dominion okay, of sin. Well, you can't have two masters. You're either subservient to one or the other. He'll say, Know ye not that to whom ye yield yourselves servants to obey... His servants ye are to whom ye obey. I love that he puts there the, uh, the defier there, his servants. He says, what, to whom you yield yourself servants to obey, his servants ye are to whom ye obey. Making the point, he's not just talking about things. He's saying there is a master of the things. So if we're yielding ourselves to lust, fornication, arrogance, idolatry, those kind of things, it's not the things that we're, we're becoming subservient to, it's a person does that catch on that we are being subservient not just to some things some ideologies some practices we're actually becoming subservient to the source of those things which would be satan we are yielding ourselves as slaves to his power and the reverse is true if we yield ourselves servants to christ we are Christ's slaves. That's actually how it's, um, how it's put in other versions. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? 
Those are our two masters. Pick which one you want to serve, okay? Pick which one sounds good this morning, okay? Which one sounds good? Life or death? <laughs> this is, again, this is kind of how Joshua did it. In Deuteronomy and going into Joshua, this is how he, he said, look, choose you this day whom you're going to serve. Choose you this day who you want to follow. One path leads to life, happiness, joy, security, ability, all those things we've talked about. One of them leads to death. Again, common sense would tell us that we would want the one that leads to life. Okay? Just makes sense. So we cannot have two masters. So if you're straddling the fence today, thinking somehow that we can continue to live this kind of duplicitous life where we give God half and give the world half and satisfy half of our lusts and half of our service to God, it doesn't work. We're abandoning one or the other. And typically what it is, is is we're abandoning Jesus Christ for all those other things that we think make us happy. And he says, don't do that. (laughs) Don't do that. Don't give yourself over that because you're bringing yourself back into slavery. And all it's going to do is lead to death. So he goes on and he says, Therefore, I say unto you, take no thought for your life what ye shall eat or what ye shall drink, nor yet for your body what ye shall put on it. Is not the life more than meat and the body than raiment? Behold the fowls of the air, they sow not, neither do they reap, nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feedeth them. Are ye not much better than they? Which of you by taking thought can add one cubit unto his stature? And why take ye thought for raiment? Consider the lilies of the valley, or the, sorry, the lilies of the field, how they grow, they toil not, neither do they spin. And yet I say unto you that even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Wherefore, if God so clothed the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is cast into the oven, shall he not much more clothe you, O ye of little faith? Therefore take no thought, saying, What shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or wherewithal shall we be clothed? For after all these things do the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knoweth that ye have need of these things. But seek ye first these, uh, the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Take therefore no thought for the morrow, for the morrow shall take thought for the things of itself, sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. Now, this gets into kind of the final teaching in this chapter, and it is there is kind of a separation. They put the chapter uh, headings in here fairly, fairly accurately um, in the sense that this breaks up the thoughts going into chapter 7, so it's a good place to stop this morning. But he goes to say, not only serving two masters and talking about the impossibilities of that, then he goes into actually teaching the practicalities of now what you do with that. Okay, What is it that you're serving as a master? Well, one of these is food and raiment. Okay? And he says, you can't focus, zero in, and serve that master. Says, and number two, you shouldn't worry about those things because we have an all-sufficient provider in God. Okay, and he talks about that with the birds of the air, and you've heard these before, and they're always so fascinating to me. Number one, because it describes God feeding the birds. Okay, not some 
you know, I don't know, kind of evolutionary survival of the fittest. Um, you know, they just kind of learned this over billions of years kind of thing. No, it actually, it speaks as if God is such an intimate creator that he still provides for the birds of the air, the fowl of the air, the fish of the sea, the animals around. He says, none of them go out and sow crops. They don't do all these things. Where do they get their food from? Well, everywhere around us. Okay. So then by, by kind of in turn, okay. Who then keeps those processes, or processee, whatever it is, going? Why do, tr- why do trees continue to produce fruit? Why do plants continue to produce fruit? Why do they continue to do these things which these birds and other animals feed off of? Because ultimately you have a God who is keeping all things together by the power of his word. And that's not just in some very kind of existential power in that he's keeping the molecules together, as we've talked about before. You know, there's no rogue molecule. There's no molecule spinning off out there going, I'm doing what I want to do because I'm a molecule and I've self-identified or whatever. No, God has that molecule exactly where he wants it, and he keeps them in check so that we all don't just disapparate into a bunch of goo, okay? We are held together by the power of his word, but that holding together also means that our molecules continue to uh, work through, um, you know, electrons and protons and neurons, and they grow into cells, and then you've got hearts beating and lungs pumping air, and you've got fish swimming, and you've got birds eating from trees that are producing fruit, and all of this beautiful system is held together by the power of God, yea and amen. So he says, if I'm doing all these things, if I'm keeping all of this stuff going on, if I'm continuing to provide food for birds, where do you think you fall in line? Where do you think you fall in the line of provision, provisional care of the Creator and the Father? Notice that he doesn't call the birds their father, okay? He doesn't speak to the birds as if he is their father and they are his children. No, he is their creator and they are his creation. Okay? But we are his children. It is our heavenly father that feedeth them. Okay? So if our heavenly father feedeth them, as he says here, as Christ, okay, the son of God tells us, he says, are you not much better than them? Now, this is a very profound verse in that you can take it in the way that he's see, uh, stating it here contextually. God is our provider. Absolutely, 110%. And that's why he says you don't worry about all this stuff because God can take care of it. But also, make that point come home and roost in your brain. Are you not much better than them? Are you not much better than them? I'm just going to tell you this. You are much better than them, okay? Not that you are such a, you know, outstanding citizen or holy roller or whatever it may be, but that God created you and you alone in his image, okay? 
So whereas we are called to be good stewards of the creation that God gave us, that we are made back in Adam's day, we were made to be stewards of the world, of the ground, of the ecosystem, whatever it may be. We are called to do that and of the animals and everything that inhabited. But rest assured, your life is much more precious to God, okay, than the birds, the bees, the animals, and everything else, okay? So that not only should give us pause and thoughtful consideration about other human beings around us, okay? We have discussed this somewhat as we've gone through loving your enemy and things like that, that, you know, we are so just zeroed in on our place we are so zeroed in on our little family unit our little community unit our little country unit that sometimes things don't relate okay so especially the farther away in distance you get so as we've said before let someone drive a truck through the walmart parking lot here in jasper and mow down about 20 or 30 people you'll have a much more visceral reaction from us than you will if it happens in London or if it happens in France. Now, because it's London and France and they're a little closer proximity, you know, we do. We, we have that outpouring of compassion, okay? We think about it. It may strike us. It hurts us. We can kind of commiserate with them. Go a little bit further east. Let a car bomb go off in the middle of Afghanistan or Iraq and kill 40, 50, 60 to 100 people every other day and it's like oh i didn't even know that was happening let if you look in places like egypt let coptic christians be blown up in their churches some of the oldest christians on the world they predate us okay i know we think that jesus christ came to america and founded the church okay he didn't we are transplants those people are OG. They're originals, okay? They're in churches that the Apostle Mark walked through. So when you look at the history of those places, they have old ties back to believing in Jesus Christ way before we were even in existence. You let those people die. And maybe, yeah, maybe it does sway some of our hearts, change our minds, get cause us pause. Maybe we'll think to pray about them. But the distance there creates a division. And plus, we also just tie all that into that crazy Middle East with a bunch of people who just like to blow each other up. But yeah, you do realize those are people, though. Humans. That God views as much better than the birds. And they are just on the same playing field as me and you. And God has just as much of a desire and compassion and love towards his people in those areas as he does anywhere else. I know we think we cornered the market on God's love and his thoughts and compassion because we're in the great U.S. of A., but there's other people around the world that he cares about, and therefore we should care about them as well. So the fact that he identifies that we are much better, that's not just talking about these people in this audience. It's also talking about every person around the world that God has created in his image. So we should have a compassion and desire in that way. But he's using this in a way of saying, and, and it's again, it's the much, it, it ties in so well with it when he says one of the most profound statements I kind of, 
you know, of everything that Christ has said, how can you really say one is more profound than the other one? But this really is a very profound statement, and we kind of talked about this at the nursing home last week. Is not the life more than meat and the body than raiment? Verse 25 of chapter 6. A very, very just kind of almost existential thought. Is not the body more than meat and the raiment? Is not your life more than just what we put on and what we eat? And the answer is yes. That's not life. Your life is not made up of those things. Yet as we kind of addressed this, we talked about, but that's what we think is our life. Your life is only as good as the clothes that you wear, the Jordans on your feet, the car you drive, the kind of food you eat, where you eat it from, okay, whether you get Taco Bell, Taco Casa, okay, or whether you get La, you know, whatever, Mexican, you know, Superior, you know, whatever level of food that you're eating, that defines you. You know, do I get a steak from Ruth Chris or do I get a steak from Ruby Tuesdays, okay? Because one of them is just, you know, it holds a higher standard, Right, you know they are all cuts of meat from a cow. Now I, I get it. I've had a really good steak, and man, it's just absolutely mouthwateringly delicious. But when you really get down to it, it's still just a, it's a cut of meat from a cow. Why would that define who I am in the socio-economical uh, kind of division? Why would it matter that I bought my clothes from Walmart, Target, you know, uh, the thrift store versus uh, Gucci and uh, whatever the other ones are, okay? I know, you know, Saks Fifth Avenue used to be a thing, okay? Um, But maybe that's not a thing anymore. Why does that matter? And what God says is, is not your life more than these things? The answer is yes. (laughs) That's not our life. In fact, Christ will even tell us in the wilderness as he's arguing with Satan, he'll say, this is not how you live. It's not by the food that you put in your mouth. It's by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. That's what is the measure of your life, not the things that you have on you or the food that you eat. So is not our life more than the car, the job, the family, the house, the glory, the fame, the honor, the status, the wealth, you know, the degrees, okay? You know, I always joke about how many degrees I could put out behind my name, okay, because I went this long, arduous route of school. I went through and got my ADN, then I got my BSN, then I got my MSN, then I got my CRNP, and then I got my ACNP, BC, then I got my RNFA, and then my LMNOP, and all these things. And you can just keep on adding little letters out there. And you know what? There's some people that when you read in journals and things like that, they got all these things out behind their name. It's like, wow, you really wasted a lot of your life okay that's how i look at mine that's how i look at mine i got a lot of i could put a lot of letters out there it's like wow you really just have letters out behind your name okay it's kind of like doing math with letters it really it always was pointless right okay um math is supposed to be with numbers not with letters that's what divides them one's alphabet and english and the other one's math with numbers that's just what we always know but we always put these things we rely on these things or in the world at least i should say that's not you know again okay um education is good all right i'm not knocking that obviously i am uh wholeheartedly two feet in it just loving it every minute but when you look at these things it's not about that though if that is our defining characteristic of what gives us status okay if it's like well i have to get my 
whatever. I have to get my car. I have to get this kind of family. You know, some people will say, well, I have to be married by 25 and I got to have three and a half kids and I got to have that four bedroom house and I got to have that uh, minivan. I don't know. Um, whatever it may be. I got to have those things because then I'll know when I reach that stage that I finally have arrived at who I really am. And let me just go ahead and tell you that if the minivan is your high water mark, you've really set the bar low. Okay. All right. Even though I love my minivan. All right, it's really great. But these are not the things that make up our life. It's not the letters by our name. It's not our status. It's not our fame. It's not our house. It's not our home. It's not our car. It's not our money. That's not what identifies us. What identifies us is Jesus Christ. Okay? And this gets into, and I'm not going to dive too deep into this, but this gets into with, I mean, because identity is like this huge thing now. Okay? How do you identify what do you identify? That's why there is so much confusion in it because we're looking at it going, well, am I identifying as a man? Am I identifying as a woman? Because once I figure that out, then I'll know what my identity is. Am I straight? Am I gay? Am I bisexual? Am I transsexual? Am I whatever other sexual there is? Okay, that's my identity. And once I figure that out, then I'm set. You know, it always, that, that whole thing always kind of boggles my mind i don't make fun of it but it is boggling my mind because every time it used to be you know like lgbt and then it turned into lgbtq and then it turns into like lgbtqu for undecided or something and so i'm like you 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 don't even see that even in that you can't figure out who you are you can keep adding letters to that all day that's like worshiping the unknown God. Eventually, you've got to come to grips with the reality that maybe that's not where your identity comes from. And it's not. And it's the same thing with us. Those things are not what define us. CRP out by my name doesn't define me. It gives me a space. It gives me a job. It kind of points me in what I feel like is my gifting of God and where he has enabled me and kind of worked me to be the way I am to do this thing for him and his kingdom in this place. That enables me in that. But if that is the sum total of my existence, then again, man, my existence is very, very shallow. My existence goes as deep as sticking needles in people, which I got to admit, you know, it's gratifying sometimes, but, you know, that cannot be the sum total of my existence. If it is, what a pitiful existence that is. But having our existence and our, our existence and our identity wrapped up in the eternal one in Jesus Christ, now that's got a little more weight. That's got a little more kind of terminality to it. It goes a little bit further. It has a little more distance on that. So he says, take no thought for these things. Don't worry. Don't be anxious about these things. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Two things on this. He tells us to seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness. This comes full circle back to what we were talking about in chapter 6 at the very beginning. When we said when you give alms, and really that phrase means to do righteousness. Okay, So he's coming full circle again. He's saying, seek the kingdom of God. Where is the kingdom of God? Well, the kingdom of God is right here. Jesus Christ said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Press into the kingdom of heaven. Enter into the kingdom of heaven. Okay? So he says, seek the kingdom of heaven, the things of the kingdom of heaven, and everything in the kingdom of heaven, and seek God's righteousness. Do the righteous things. Give, love, share, uh, uh, pray fast. Do the things that God has labeled as righteous. 
He says, focus on those things and all these other things, all of the uh, kind of the provisional supplies of God will be taken care of. Because he says, your father knows what you need. He knows what you stand in need of. He knows what the birds need. He knows what you need. And he's going to take care of it. So we kind of close, we close this chapter by saying that number one, Christians are the ones who do, if you're going to be a Christian, you do righteousness, okay? You can't claim that name and not do righteousness. You cannot say that I'm going to say on a form or whatever, I'm a Christian, but I really have no desire to do these things. That doesn't play out. You're just not a Christian. You're not following God. You're not doing what he commanded you to do. So to be a Christian, you've got to do righteousness. We talked about those three activities of daily Christian walk, of giving, praying, and fasting. Those are the things that we work, at, we work out um, as part of our doing of righteousness. Number two, he says that worrying more about the material things and trusting in them brings only anxiety. Take no thought is basically saying quit being anxious over these things. Quit worrying about these things. Quit thinking that those things that you're worrying about, the material things, are actually the things that are going to give you ability, security, and happiness because they are fleeting, they come from the world, and instead we should be trusting in Jesus Christ alone. And lastly, that we seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness because this brings true ability, security, and happiness. It's the only thing that can. And that this also brings about peace. And that seeking righteousness and doing righteousness is seeking the kingdom of God. And in that we find peace. So we've kind of joked before that, you know, I've never heard anyone say, oh, you know what? It's really just too peaceful. I don't like it. Throw a grenade in this situation because I just the peace is just really overwhelming to me. Feeling satisfied and comfortable and good and I'm happy and I'm well fed and well slept and all these things. That's just it. You know what? Let's mix this up. Okay. I do think people do that in some ways because they have children. Okay. They continue to have children. And they'll get to that point where, because we've realized this, they'll get to that point where you feel pretty good. You got that kid rocking along. He's eating right. He's doing right. He's sleeping finally after, you know, like 12 months of not knowing where the end of the bed was. You know, finally we've got peace. He's sleeping and everything. And they're like, you know what? Let's have another one. Praise God. Let's just throw another one in this mix. Let's get some more craziness. Let's, you know, let's go back to sleepless nights. Let's be changing diapers every five minutes. And let's just, let's just do this all again. So maybe there is a case when people do throw their hand grenades in their peaceful situation. But in that sense, I would say, yay and amen. It's a great thing. But um, you do realize that most people, when they find peace, don't want to disrupt that. Okay? So again, going back to common sense, why do we continue to pray on things? That's pray, P-R-E-Y. Why do we continue to pray on things that only create dissatisfaction, uncomfortableness, Un, uh, I guess you could say, re or you should say restlessness, okay? A lack of peace. Why do we seek these things when we have the kingdom of God and his righteousness, which provides all the stability, all the ability, all the security, and all the happiness that we could ever want? And guess what? It's free admission. <laughs>
So I hope these things have been good. Um, help us and uh, continue to pray as we try to go through them.